Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to April 30th, 2013, episode 1120, Designing Small-Scale Forest Gardens. Um, this is a really great episode. This was uh, precipitated by a presentation I did at a self-reliance expo here in Arlington. And um, I'll, I'll leave it at that because during the original episode that we'll get to in just a second, I explain that. Um, but I wanted to cover a couple things. Number one, we moved to this property um, in February of 2013. So I was very new, or actually January of 2013. So I was, I was only on my property here for a few months at this point. And at that point, I was in discussions with Jeff Lawton, and it looked like I was going to be able to run a uh, design course, uh, an on, hands-on design implementation course with him uh, coming here to America to design my property. So there were uh, quite a few references to that in this episode. I didn't listen to every single second of this episode in prep for this rewind, because uh, I would kind of negate doing a rewind and make it take almost as long as a regular one. But I listened to the beginning and uh, tried to take as much of that out as possible. If you hear any references to that uh, and you're new to the show, just know that that never happened. I ended up doing 100% of the design of this property myself, not because Jeff was unwilling to, but just because schedules were impossible to arrange. The guy does live in Australia and do relief work in Africa in the Middle East. So with that, it just made it where I didn't have time to wait anymore, and I got cracking on it and did it myself. Um, and I'm glad I did now because now this design is my design and my mistakes were my mistakes and, my, and they were my learning opportunities. So uh, I think that's a good thing. Uh, the next is there is a video that was in the original show notes, which due to some copyright arguments with the video producer and all kind of went away. I think I found it. And so I do have a link in the rewind notes to the, the video that I think is the original referenced video. If anything doesn't line up with any mentions that I, I give of it, it's still the same type of video. It's a microspace um, video. Because what we're talking about today is designing small-scale forest gardens. Uh, and this is something that can be done on a property of just about any size. The video in question... Uh, the guy does it in a 640 square foot area, 640 square feet. He, it, it's, it's, it's given in square footage because if they gave it to you in acreage, it wouldn't even make any sense. I mean, I, I remember having an apartment uh, that was 750 square feet, and I felt like it was a pretty small apartment. 640 square feet. If you're talking houses, I don't know that you're in a tiny house world, but you're in the very, very small house world. So it's a very small area, and I, I wanted to kind of just point that out, that that's why I'm, I'm leaving you this episode this week, um, because I think a lot of you guys do live on smaller properties and often wonder when we talk about things like food forestry, farm forestry, et cetera, can you do it uh, on such a small property? The answer is you can, and you may or may not want to. Depending on how small the property is, it may encompass the entire property. 
And if you're a single person or you're a couple and your kids are grown, then maybe you are happy with that. If your kids like running through little places like that, then maybe you're happy with that. But if your kids want to kick a ball in the backyard, then maybe it doesn't make sense. You, you have to figure that out for yourself. You know, are you nearby a recreational place for them to have that type of engaged activity? Well, then maybe it's great to have a little forest for them to hide in in your backyard. But you have to figure that out. And do you, do, is this what you want? Um, it, it's not for everybody. It really is, and there was a time I think I got a little bit evangelical with it. Everybody should have a forest garden. You're wrong if you don't, you know. And I, I don't really think that's the case. I think that, you know, you have to figure out what works for you. We cover a lot of stuff here on TSP. We talk about you know, when it comes to growing food, you know, wicking beds and aquaponics. That might work better in the small space. But I think the lessons of this show can be applied to anything that you're doing. When we start talking about layering and downscaling the layers today, So what we're talking about mostly today, since we're talking about forest gardens, is we're downscaling. So we take dwarf fruit trees and we put bushes underneath them, or we take full-size fruit trees and we prune them, and we only let them get so tall to where we can reach the top. And we basically, so now we can still have our canopy and our subcanopy and our herbaceous. We're just, we're. What I, I think I say in this episode, as I think I say, it's like dragging and dropping a picture. So you take a great big picture and you're going to put it into a blog post, and it's too big, so you grab the end and you just drag it down. But we can drag that down. So through this episode, if you're more of like the container gardener, the aquaponics person, the wicking beds and stuff like that, you can drag it down to that size. Right now, I'm I'm, I'm working in training um, Jerusalem artichokes that are going to be you know six seven foot tall when they're done growing. But I am and I'm going to let them get that tall. But as they grow, I'm pruning out their understory so that they are not fully leafed all the way to the ground the way they normally grow. Because then I can plant. An herbal understory. I can plant, you know, cutting amaranth or, or arugula or anything like that underneath the Jerusalem artichokes. And in the blazing Texas heat, I'll be able to grow those crops I normally can't grow in my summer because they'll have some shade, a motlet shade. So that's taking this principle of layering and having an understory and bringing it down and then creating a microclimate in a wicking bed where the humidity's higher. So this this really is always, when we talk about permaculture, and always when we talk about anything relating to a forest, the forest is the teacher, in the words of Jeff Lawton. And I think the forest is our greatest teacher. I think one of the reasons that many societies existed as hunter-gatherers in the forest is the forest is a place where, when you understand it, everything is provided for you. Everything is always Perfect. It may not be perfect for you, but as far as the forest is concerned, everything is perfect. A forest is perfect. And when we enter that forest and we learn how that forest works, we almost feel like we're entering into a living entity, like a being. And I think that many many ways we are. So what today's episode is, can we replicate that feeling? Can we replicate that feeling in miniature in a small backyard? The answer, my friends, is yes. So here we go. All the way back to April 30th, 2013, just about six years ago. Episode 1120, Designing Small-Scale Forest Gardens. 
This is uh, this is going to be a show again on designing small forest gardens. This would be something that you would put in a backyard if you live in a place where they won't come and cause you a lot of grief and send the department of making you sad. Also known as code enforcement or the the, the authorities out because they're upset because you don't have a green uh, green grass front yard. If you live in a place like that, you might do the whole yard, front, back, side, everything. But you have to make those decisions for yourself based on where you live and who lives around you. And uh, I'm hoping that in the future, um, these types of landscapes we're going to talk about today become the exception rather than the rule. Um, the reason I'm doing this show is, is multifold. I, I just did a whole presentation on six techniques. I put the video out yesterday for you guys uh, in permaculture, and one of the big ones was forest gardening and food forest construction. And when I got done... With my presentation and took questions, it didn't surprise me that the main things people were asking, at least in regards to that portion, were what trees and plants will work in Texas. And you could just change that to the United States. Um, the second is, uh, how does this all apply to a small backyard or a smaller piece of land? Even though I covered that. Uh, but that was the two big questions. It doesn't, and the way it says it doesn't surprise me is it's always what you get. And what I need to tell you guys is something I keep saying, but it's very hard for people to accept. Everybody's convinced that their property is different, unique, and not the same as the last property that they looked at. And everybody is right because unless it's exact, you know, occupying the exact same space at the exact same time, of course it's different. And everybody's also wrong because in the end, it's just a piece of land. And trees and plants and bushes and shrubs and vines grow with certain rules. And as long as we can get sunlight and water and fertility to them, we can find something that will grow. I mean, that's that's as basic as I can make it. Let me comfort you a little bit with why you struggle with this, though, because I do, too. I look at my property and go, wow, I'm not sure that. But there's certain areas where I'm doing exactly the type of thing. I've got plants on order. I'm waiting for them to show up. Exactly the type of thing I'm going to talk to you about today. And I'm going to keep doing that in this kind of zone one space for me. So I'm doing this, too, and I still struggle with it, and I'll tell you what it is. It is a personal bias. It is a belief that we are all somehow so special and so unique that our problems are different than everybody else's. In fact, if you go take a permaculture design course, uh, especially one taught by uh, Jeff Lawton in the past, Bill Mollison and, and Jeff Lawton, Bill's kind of retired from that at his age, uh, they would say one of the first things they would teach you is in spite of how awesome this experience is going to be in spite of how much you're going to learn in spite of how qualified you're going to be to do design work when you when you leave this this two-week experience do not design your own property first because it's just the way human beings are we can and i i learned this early on as i started to really kind of learn about design I, I could go, somebody said, well, you come out of my house and look at it. I'd walk in and go, you put this here, put that there, put a swale here, put a pond there, do this, do that, throw your water catchment barrel there, that'll go upgrade there, put another catchment system up there, run a low, I mean, just I, whatever it was. Okay, here's your solar aspect, here's your primary winds, here's where you're never going to have sun, it's only going to be shade, we have to find shade tolerant plants. So we could, it's, it's so easy. You look at your own property, you're like, ugh, right? So I, I think a good starting point that'll start to get you at least out of that box is to go ahead and map the contours of your property. That that's my my favorite way to unblock the design block. But it may not be that critical with what we're going to talk about today. Other than you may want to put in some swales for a few things that I'll explain. Um, but they're not going to be critical the way they are in a major forest system. They're just not. In the type of system I'm going to talk about today, the swaling is more to keep water in the landscape as it always is. 
but not necessarily to directly irrigate uh, and to control nutrient flow on the property and uh, to create, in some instances, pathways. And I'll talk about how you can do that. So just realize that a lot of the things that you hear when you look at large-scale food forestry don't apply or change in how they apply to smaller holdings. And I want to start out with some of the real advantages of smaller land holdings. Uh, and when you're doing a small forest garden, the first one to me is it can be irrigated. And I don't mean like that it's possible because, you know, we can irrigate anything. Um, there are giant fields, thousands of acres that are irrigated with uh, systems that I consider to be actually pretty harmful, but it, it could be done. What I mean by it can be irrigated is a normal person of normal means can set up a, the system to be irrigated without a lot of trouble. I mean, if it, if it comes down to it, it's putting some sprinklers in the ground and running some hoses here and there and maybe taking them in when you're not using them. But it's not hard. If we're dealing with, let's say, I don't care how big the property is, but let's say we're dealing with somewhere between a tenth to a quarter of an acre under management like this, um, or even smaller holdings, right? We could do the one in Jeff's video, the guy is 640 square feet. I don't know if you realize how small that really is. It's, it's, you say it in square feet because it means nothing. It means nothing when you take it to acres. It's not a tenth of an acre, right? It's a hundredth of an acre. It's 0.014 acres. I mean, that's, that's about as small as the space gets. And that guy has, all kinds of trees and plants. So we get something from, you know, the ridiculous down to 500 square feet or, or even less up to about, you know, say 8,700 square feet, which is about two tenths of an acre, right? So 4,300 square feet is about a tenth of an acre. So you're talking about with a tenth of an acre that you're doing the footprint of a very large family home, right? If this is not made, this is really kind of small. And when you have that, Irrigation becomes quite easy. Uh, even if you're going to have to, you know, do it all by hand and dig in some PVC pipe and put in several different hose bibs and, and then put in some drip or even conventional irrigation, it's not, that's the whole point that it's not hard. And this takes away a tremendous amount of objections. Cause one of the biggest objections is going to be, I live in a dry climate. Great. Irrigate it. Okay, I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. And I'm not allowed to catch water off my roof. Fine. Use the water from we can only use so much. Fine. When we're done with this system, it won't need that much irrigation. Okay, if we build a system that harvests and hold the irrigation that we put into it, we don't need that much. We just need some and it'll be a hell of a lot more effective than whatever your neighbor does. And and the people in a dry climate that like live in a place where no one has a lawn. Right. This is perfect for you because you don't have to worry. Well, I'm going to give up my lawn because that's the other thing. People say, I want some lawn. Right. Well, you don't have a lawn. So you have nothing to worry about. The more you plant, this is crazy. The more you plant, the more numbers you plant with the more diversity and how deep and how the structures of the roots are. And then the more you mulch, the less water you will need over time. The system itself will begin to develop its own natural aquifer underneath your property, especially if you're irrigating mulching, holding water with the shape and form of the land, chopping and dropping, and, and using diversity. It will become lush. And I've seen it in you know desert areas of New Mexico. Um, there's actually a permaculture institute in an area in New Mexico where you, you, you look around. There's not a tree. It's open. Everywhere's open. The whole town's open. And there's this little permaculture institute they have set up there. I can't remember the name of it. And the whole backyard's just lush with trees everywhere. Well, they're irrigating. 
but they're not irrigating as much as you might think. That's a huge thing. It's also easy to intensively manage these small holdings. And what I mean by intensive management isn't taking a lot of time, but simply doing a little bit every day and paying attention to what's going on. If something's not doing well because it needs some more fertility, we can bring in fertility. We can compost it. We can use an organic fertilizer. We can use an organic uh, uh, wet fertilizer like a fish emulsion uh, or something like that. Whatever it is, if it's not getting enough sunlight, well, we can go in there with a pair of pruners and whatever's shading it, we can open it up just a little bit. We can open it up a little bit and see, is that enough? If it's enough, great. If it's not, we can open it up a little bit more. If, if fruit is being bothered by pests, we can go in and, and directly address the pest concern. If there's anything that's not quite right, it's easy to fix because we can see everything so easily. We don't lose control. And once we get it up and once we get it running, the maintenance is very, very minimal. Probably, you know, if we wanted to do something every day, it's probably 20 minutes a day. And you'd, after you get the, the, the system established, you might struggle to actually work for 20 minutes a day. Like you might be out there for an hour because you like it, but you're not doing anything. I find myself in the, when I'm messing around, spending more time just looking at things and appreciating them than actually doing work. It's it's a more fulfilling way to live than pulling weeds uh, for a couple hours a week. Um, the next thing is they contain their own microclimates. If you think about a house in a typical suburban lot, you've got a fence around it, and most of us are going to put most of our effort into that backyard because that's where nobody's going to complain or whine because we don't have grass. Okay, And I wish that was different, but that, that's the case. Well, one side of that house, let's say the house is facing, um, facing south, right? So, or, or facing north even, it doesn't really matter. One side of that house is going to be a narrow band, and the sun is going to come up in the morning and hit that side of the house and warm it up, but you're going to get very, very little light in there if you have one of those big privacy fences like a lot of subdivisions do, and just the other house that's there. And then as the sun comes overhead, it's going to get pretty hot and quite a bit of sun for a little bit of time in the morning sun. And as the sun passes over, it's going to shade out. That's a very specific type of climate. Okay? It really is. And it's going to have ability to hold moisture probably more than the west side of the house that's going to get the more intense afternoon sun. Even though it's going to go all morning in the shade, that afternoon side uh, is going to get hit, especially in the southern United States, a lot harder. The front yard has a different climate. The backyard has another. If we put a little forest garden in a backyard like that, we create our own little microclimate within there. In a small land space like that, depending on which place we choose, if we put in a small garden pond, I'm talking a couple hundred gallons. I'm talking one of the you know $100 shells that you can dig into the ground at, at Home Depot or dropping a stock tank into the ground or digging the pond out and lining it with bend. I'm just talking a couple hundred gallons. That pond will change the climate around it. And the more that's planted around it and the more structures that's around it, that that, that that pond actually is contained in a humidity rise and its cooling effect, the greater the effect. Where if I take and put even, let's say, uh, a 5,000-gallon stock tank out in the middle of an open field, it does very little to change the climate. But a, a couple hundred gallons will create a microclimate. So not only are there existing microclimates in a small space, they're easy to create. And every time we create a microclimate, we create a different optimum condition for different plant types, and we can plant things into there. Now we spread the diversity, and we create the resi additional resiliency and extended harvest of the system for usable components thereof. All right, so th there's th that just doesn't happen in a big space. It does, but not as easily, not as simple. People say, well, I'm not sure what to plant in that microclimate. Make your best guess. Plant more than you really should. 
The stuff that thrives in courage and the stuff that doesn't prune it out. And that's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a cost analysis there too. Like how much does it cost when you fully put into large production, let's say even a half of an acre into a more traditional food forest versus how much does it cost to go in and put one of these intensive landscapes in? And you can afford to spend the money because you're going to lose less. You're going to have less sacrifice. Um, and I'll, I'll talk more about that later as well and how there's some misgivings and misunderstandings about things like the, the 10 ratios that Jeff teaches about establishing a large food forest in a tropical environment is actually far more complicated uh, and far more delicate on the land. You have to be far more careful than you do with a couple you know, tenths of an acre in a backyard. You can get away with a lot of things. The next thing is these small systems like this are the most productive per square foot on the planet. There's, there's nothing on planet Earth that can compare to the productivity of an intensively managed system like this per square foot. It, it, it's, it's not even close. C compared to modern agriculture, it's a joke. But even compared to, you know, orcharding or, or things like that, it's, it, it's, it's unbelievable the production that can come out of, of, you know, even just several hundred square feet when it's properly managed. Next is almost all the work can be done by hand. Um, there's places where I'd say, you know, a little, ex a little mini tiny excavator or a bobcat would save you a lot of time and work, and you might want to consider it. But in the reality of things, uh, especially if you have soil that's reasonably easy to dig in, and I hear people, oh, I got clay, and everybody's upset because they have clay and it holds too much water, and there's no problem with clay. If we mulch it, it'll structure beautifully for us. Because the next person comes and goes, but I got sand. I wish I had clay. And, again, you got to start thinking about what you have, not what you wish you had. Because I'm promising you, most of you that say, but I have, in a negative, if, if you had something else, you'd find a problem there too. And in permaculture, the problem is a solution. So in the clay, we know it holds lots of moisture. That's good. We irrigate less. And we, we mulch the hell out of it because we know we need to structure that. I, it's amazing to me that it, it's hard for people to grasp. And it was for me too. I remember when I bought my first house. It was in the southern Arlington, Mansfield, Texas area. And everything was what we call a black gumbo clay there. And I'd go out, I believe there's nothing, I'd, I'd put freaking peat moss in there, and I'd till manure in, and it would look all good when I got it all done. If it didn't rain for a couple of days and dry it out a little bit, I'd get it looking good, and then the next year it looked like crap, and it was back to black gumbo. And, but, you know, at that point, I didn't know about this stuff, and I never thought about the fact that just down the road, there was undeveloped land. On that undeveloped land was natural regrowth, native tree forests, live oaks, pin oaks, um, a bunch of different plants and, and species. Uh, the What do you call the horse apple tree? I can't remember what you call that thing right now, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, all of this stuff was there. And if you went in there and kicked the leaves aside, the soil looked beautiful. Well, it's the same soil. It's the same place. We're talking about a couple hundred yards apart. So why is it like that there? Because... The, 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 when you have grass and nothing but grass and little beds, that's not the natural state. So you're, you're going against nature. It's going to fail. So if we go into these systems and create these structures and then mulch them heavily and put enough diversity into them, that structure will begin to change not just the structure of the land itself, but the structure of the soil itself, no matter what's there. But the, the good news is we can do most of that by hand. We can remove the expense. We can take our time. This doesn't have to happen overnight. We can start with 100 square, uh, or 100, 100 square feet. 
and, and get that the way we want it and then do another hundred and then do another hundred. And we can phase that in over months or years. It all depends on what we want to do. Um, it also doesn't attract attention. If you do this in a backyard, unlike, you know, even where I'm at, you know, if there's a time where food becomes scarce, it's kind of odd. There's a big piece of land there. Something's going on. A, a neighborhood with this design like this, somebody on the outside that didn't know any better wouldn't have any idea that there would be a score of food there. It just wouldn't look like food. It would just look like a big tree-filled, bush-filled, vine-filled backyard. Okay, So it's easy to secure, too, not only because it doesn't attract as much attention, but because it's a small area, and in a, in a secure uh, an environment where you need to increase security, you have less to even cover. Right, It's pretty easy to know if somebody's back there that doesn't belong there. Versus if you have five acres, somebody could be on the backside of it, robbing you blind of a, of a resource, you never even know that they're there. That doesn't mean the big land doesn't have advantages, too. I'm just saying there's always advantages, and we need in all walks of life to be looking to our advantages versus our disadvantages. And the nitrogen fixers are not as critical. Every time you look into permaculture, nitrogen, 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 nit well, there's a reason, right? And there's, there's twofold as to why it's not as critical. Number one, we're in North America in a temperate climate. The soils are less fragile. The nitrogen leaches a lot less slow, a lot more slowly, so we don't lose it as fast. We're in a deciduous climate where these trees, bushes, and vines are going to do leaf drop every year. Those are going to create their own nitrogen cycles, okay? Um, and then we have less space so we can bring in supplemental nitrogen in the form of organic fertilizers. All of those, and we can mulch everything straight off the get-go, heavily. With all of those together, we don't need as many nitrogen fixtures. They're still a good idea, and there's places where the first thing I would do is plant cowpea and vetch or cowpea and buckwheat and heal that land a bit, and then once that, that, that plant has done its, its job and it's kind of run to maturity, I might just chop it down and mulch over top of it. Um, but the long, longer-term nitrogen fixers, the five-year, ten-year sacrificial trees are just not as necessary. I'm going to talk about certain trees today that you can put in there and bushes you can put in there that will fix nitrogen. That's great. You might want to try to include one or two or three in your design, but they're nowhere near as critical. And that's an advantage to us in the temperate climate. In a subtropical, tropical climate, the soils are much more fragile. And the nitrogen leaching is much more excessive. And that 80 inches, 90 inches of wonderful rainfall that they get in those fragile soils leaches even more of it. They have so much more of a need to build the organic matter faster. They have so much more of a need to cut and chop and drop than we do. Because have you ever raked the leaves in a yard from one oak tree and see how much biomass there is? So we have this natural cycle that they're, they're actually manually accelerating far more than we need to. All of those are advantages in the small space and the temperate climate that everybody seems to think is actually more difficult. There are some things that are difficult, are different from typical food forestry. Number one is the layers are scaled down. You can do this a variety of ways. If you haven't watched the video that Jeff put out on small spaces, please do. But in that video, you'll see that what the guy did is he planted like four or five different apple trees. Now, four or five apple trees, think about this, 640 square feet. All right. It, again, it's, it's ridiculous to put it into acres. Let me put it a different way. That's a piece of land right at 20 feet by 30 feet. Okay? 20 feet by 30 feet would be 600 uh, square feet. So it's a little bit bigger than that. Okay? 30 feet is 10 yards of first down. 
first down on the football field. Okay, 30 feet is 10 long steps by 20 long steps. He guy puts four apple trees in there and puts them in on full-size rootstock. Now, what does he do to scale it back? Starts pruning them and just keeps pruning them and keeps pruning them and keeps pruning them and says whenever they get high enough that I can't reach the top anymore, he's a rather short guy, gives them a prune, prunes them three times a year and plants them far too close together gets production, and they turn more into a shrub, right? You think about an average-sized guy, five and a half feet tall, pruning where he can reach. He's pruning at about six and a half, seven feet. That's plenty of shrubs that are in that seven-foot range. Now we scaled it down. We can do this by putting in semi-dwarf or dwarf trees, right? We can build any type of thing we want, but here's the way I want you to really think about it. If you've ever played with images where you can resize them, in a blog or something like that where you can drag and drop. So you have this great big picture. You grab the corner and you just scale it down. We can scale the whole forest down like that. We can take what would be a 50-foot high tree in our canopy and we can bring it down to 10 feet or 8 feet. And that just means that then we got to scale everything. So the shrub that would normally be 8 feet, we're going to prune it down to about 4. The shrub that would normally be 8 foot tall by maybe 8 feet wide Right, a big blocky shrub, we're going to prune it down to about four feet and we're going to contain it maybe in the three, three and a half feet of width. And we're just going to prune it. And, and you say, well, that's a lot of work. It's not if we keep doing it. And over time, you'll basically, if you keep doing it long enough, you'll stunt the growth of the tree. The attempt to expand will, will begin to slow down. It'll accept its fate. And every time you prune it, you know what you do? Do you bag it up and shred it and throw it? You just cut it up in little pieces and throw it on the ground. You're improving the fertility. And now we don't need the sacrificial tree, right? Because the, 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 the tree that normally we would be nursing is providing a lot of the material for chop and drop. So just understand that all seven layers are still there. We've just scaled them down. We could scale them down until the canopy is eight feet high. Or with a dwarf tree, we could even scale them down until the canopy is four feet high or five feet high, and put very small plantings in and amongst and around them. And we don't have to focus on the layers as much. If we put diversity in there and prune things to our liking, they'll show up. Because remember, the layers are there whether we put them there or not. We just need to start looking at it a little bit differently with a smaller system. If there's space that's unoccupied, put something there, and nature will figure it out from there. The next thing is the number of the support species are reduced more of what you're planning can be for productive purposes. So in a large-scale system, even in a temperate climate that needs less, I might put in nine supporting trees to one major overstory fruit tree. In a system like this, I might put in five productive trees and three or four that are really for uh, support. I might not put any. It all depends. Or even the support species may have a little bit of a beneficial use, and I'll talk about some species here in a minute. Um, the next thing is there's there's few, if any, sacrificial plantings. It's hard for a person to get their head around, wait a minute, I'm going to go out on this, this two-acre project, and I'm going to plant a 1,000 legume trees, and in 10 years, there's only going to be 10 of them left. They're all going to be gone. They're all going to grow organic matter and be put to the ground. It, it works. It's worth doing, and in the tropics, you have no choice, but you don't have to do it in these systems. 
They don't require swales. You don't need chickens. You don't need any of that stuff, but both are welcome. And the swales, to me, take on a little bit of a different role here uh, in, in a backyard system. And small ponds and barrels are easily fed with roof catchment. If you're on a couple tenths of an acre, there's almost no place on that property that you can't push the water to directly or indirectly. And what I mean by indirectly is we can have a large catchment system and a low draw pump push water to the places that we need and then use gravity from that point. So it all depends on how the land lays, but it's very easy to move water around a small piece of property. Just let's let it be, you know, that way. Let's, uh, Look at some special considerations that kind of open up your options. The first one is shape isn't critical. Just do what works. So if we're putting swales in, our forest, at least our establishment forest, are going to be in long, narrow bands. Okay, We're doing something in a backyard, and I want this area to stay open for the kids to play ball in. Fine. I want this area open for the pool. Fine. I just look at the solar aspect, the wind, everything else, and I select plantings for it. And I plant it as densely as possible. I'm not really concerned. Is it is it round? Where's the edge? The everything will kind of work itself out if I just pick what I want, plant it, think about the orientation a little bit, make sure it gets what it needs, and prune it to suit the environment. So much easier, honestly. Uh, the solar aspect is a major concern, but we need to work with it instead of against it. So if we have a really shaded area on our property. We'll plant currants or gooseberries or some of the other plants that I'm going to give you a list for today. I'm not going to go that deep into the plants on the episode today, but I have a huge list of plants for you to consider that you can research on your own and decide what you want, where you're at. And just knowing they exist and knowing that they'll work for you is half the battle. So we do have to think more about the solar aspect. The house casts a shadow. Fences cast a shadow. Neighbors' trees cast the shadow. Everything out there casts a shadow. So with the smaller land, that's a more pronounced effect. But there's always something you can put that will occupy the space. Um, the next thing is I would say put in more irrigation than you'll think you'll ever need. Um, everybody likes to talk about things like culture, deep mulching, all these different systems where nobody ever irrigates anything. Yeah, well, okay, what we're going to try to do is put in two to three times, maybe four to five times the recommended plantings into a small space, and establish it. At least during the establishment phase, irrigation needs to be available. We want to irrigate. We want to irrigate quite a bit, unless we live in a climate where it rains all the time. Like, three days don't go by without rain. Then we're going to probably have to design to get rid of some of the water. It's very unusual and very unlikely. And even in very wet climates, there's probably dry times of the year. So put in more irrigation. That's more water catchment, more water distribution, more everything than you'll think you'll need. And the reason that we're going to do that is it's always there. And I want you to start thinking about irrigation reduction differently than maybe you have in the past, especially when I've had guys like Paul Wheaton on and we've talked about the work of Seth Holzer and you don't need to irrigate, just period. Um, I think it's very short-sighted, especially in these small spaces that are more intensively managed. And even on some larger spaces. This is how I want you to really think about it. If we came into your house and said we're going to do an energy audit, we're going to find all the places where we have leaks, where cold gets out, heat gets in, what have you. We're going to tighten that house up. Once we're done and we fully optimize that house, we foam the roof, we've, we've, we've closed off any leaks in the walls, we've optimized everything, the next smartest thing for us to do would be to put in an air conditioning system 
and a heating system that's oversized for the house or the property so that when we're using it at a lot less intensity, we increase its lifespan. And if we ever really need it for a reason, the power is there. And if we do that, we're going to find that we use a lot less electricity in the end or a lot less fuel in the end to keep our houses cool and warm. We're not going to, in a, at least in Texas, we're not going to generally try to eliminate the air conditioner. It can be done in extreme circumstances, and it's generally quite expensive to do, right? So that's how irrigation is. We're not going to try to eliminate it. We want to improve its efficiency so that every drop we put on the ground or every drop that falls is rain or every drop that runs out of the neighbor's yard ends up staying put for as long as possible. That's what it's really all about. The next thing is consider ponds. Please consider ponds. 200-gallon, 300-gallon, 400-gallon small ponds. I'm worried about mosquitoes. Put frogs in them. Put fish in them. And, you know, you can do things like throw goldfish in there, okay? Well, when it gets cold, the goldfish will die. Goldfish die. That's what they do. When they die, scoop them out and throw them onto your garden and put mulch over them. He's had probably a better life than they would having ping pong balls thrown at them at a fair or a kid's, you know, picnic or something like that. And they've served their purpose. Well, when they're dead, what then? Well, then it's too cold for mosquitoes, right? And you might find that there's certain fish species in ponds of a few hundred gallons or more that can winter over in many locations that you normally wouldn't expect. I've even seen people that have small ponds, that keep things like koi or goldfish in their ponds, and in the time of the year where it's too cold for them, they net them out and they keep them in a tank in the house. It's all up to you, but you can buy, you know, Red Comet or whatever they are, the, the regular plain old goldfish for about 13 cents a fish. So you can fight the situation and go, but mosquitoes, or you can fix the problem. And if that all else fails, you can get BT dunks and throw a BT dunk in there once a month. They're very inexpensive and highly effective, and you won't have any problems. And they won't damage anything on your land. They won't make your food toxic. Don't find a correlation to BT corn because it's not there. Uh, BT is a natural occurring bacteria, and if it's in the water, it won't just kill the mosquito wigglers. The mosquitoes will choose not to use the water that you're talking, that you have, because they'll know they can't reproduce in there. So ponds, 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 and use the ponds in ways where they accumulate nutrient, and they can then be overflowed either by rainfall or intention, and think about how to distribute that nutrient from that pond. Think about power. Uh, to at least be able to push water around them and move water. Solar is great. And you don't need a lot of power to do this on a small land holding, and it makes solar ideal. Something like a 200-watt panel and a small pump, a couple batteries and an inverter, uh, somewhere on your property, wherever's most optimum for having power to do the things that you decide in your design you want to do, and it's not that expensive. But you know what? Bury a piece of two-inch PVC, yank a freaking extension cord through it, and you got power. And on these small holdings, that's pretty easy to do. What about when the extension cord runs out? Here's an idea. <laughs> you put in a big enough piece of PVC pipe that it's easy to move it through there. When that cord's kind of done its duty, and that, you know you get several years out of a good cord, um, take and go get a new cord. Unplug it from the wall where the power comes from so you don't zap yourself somehow doing this, which would be hard anyway. Plug the old cord and the new cord. Throw a little electrical tape around it. Take the old cord, pull it out, and pull the new cord in at the same time. And now you got a new cord. Again, it's just people look for problems where there are not problems. In all design, look for the solution. 
Well, how sustainable is that? What if the grid, I can't go to the store and buy a new cord? Then you don't have power anyway. Then you should have put the solar system in. See, and it's always what if. And, 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 and this is something so important to permaculture. When somebody says what if, it almost always is the case that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter not because there's not an issue there, but it doesn't matter because there always is a solution there. And then the next one is, can I? Can I do this? Can I do that? And the answer is almost always yes. Right? So what if it doesn't matter? Can I? Yes. And if you, if you, if you do that to yourself, you'll find yourself getting your own way a lot less. Um, the next thing is understand you can plant a lot closer and a lot more dense than you think you can. If you are comfortable, if you've never done this before, okay, if you've never done this kind of a system before, if you've never seen one in a fully mature state, I don't mean on a video, I mean actually walk through one, you've never planted one, you've never walked through one, and when you plant everything, you're comfortable with how close everything is, you think there's enough room, they're not close enough. You should feel uncomfortable. I don't mean physically uncomfortable, I mean you should be like, it's too close. If you don't feel like it's too close, it's not close enough. I mean, that's, that's the best way I could, unless you're like so gifted with this that you really can look at a design on the internet and then emulate it at home and know that you're right. 99% of us, including me, cannot. You should look at it and go, that tree's too close to that tree. That bush is too, that's not going to work. It's okay. Plant more than you think you can. Plant it closer together than you should. And it's okay to sacrifice some if you figure out, well, that really was too close. If it's not been there that long, you're probably not right making the decision yet, but you could dig it up and move it. It's not as hard as people think. I had a guy, I, I don't want to move these trees. I want to put swales in and leave the trees where they are, right, at the expo. So why? He said, because I don't want to mess them up. How long have they been in the ground? A year. You can dig them right up, no problem, right? And if you're going to do major swales with a track hoe or something like that, well, you know, while it's there, you can just scoop the whole tree up, roots and all, in a bundle, and be almost no transplant shock at all. We do it in the dormant time of the year for them. They won't even know. They'll, they'll not even care. They don't, they don't put down that much of a root system in their first year. Right? But don't even think about that. Just, okay, fine. I put two bushes here. I should have put one. Prune the hell out of one. Right? And then maybe prune the hell out of both of them and let them come back. If it's not going to work, if they're not going to coexist, prune one to the ground. Chop it up and drop it. Disadvantage it to the to the advantage of the other. Choose the winner yourself based on who looks like you're doing better. This, it, it, it is that simple. It's okay. Okay, fine. I planted 50 bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines in this little tiny-ass area, and in the end, I ended up with 40 because I sacrificed 10, even though they weren't designed to be sacrificial. It's okay. The system will be stronger for it, and the survivors will be stronger for it. Um, the next is, if you have animals in the design, uh, design in their nutrient flow. Okay, so if you're going to have ducks on a pond, even in a small, and I know a lot of people won't, but, I mean, I've seen quite a few people uh, raising what the khaki Campbells for eggs in a suburban environment, and they seem to do fine. And if you're going to let them hit that little pond once in a while, make sure that pond is designed the nutrient. If they're going to be in a little shed or a, a little cage or something like that, make sure wherever they're dropping the manure, the nutrient flow is designed right into it. When there's a rain event and it happens naturally, let it go to a place, put it into a swale, distribute it through the system. Design the nutrient flow of animals into the system. I don't care if it's quail or rabbits or whatever. Even if you're collecting the manure, you will never collect it all. 
the chicken coop, put it somewhere where their manure can be washed into the system and doesn't leave your property before it does some work. Design the nutrient flow in. If you have them, you don't have to. In a larger space, build glades and maximize the edges. So if we're going to spin this, spin this out a little bit, now we get into like a third of an acre property. Instead of doing a whole third of an acre completely densely, I'd rather do three big clumps and leave some openings, and I can get really creative with shrubs and herbs and things like that on the edges of the glades. So a glade is a place, I think technically, don't jump on me if I'm wrong technically, where the opening is at least twice the width of the highest trees in the system. So if you have a 20-foot tree, to have a glade, you need a 40-foot opening. But if you're designing a system at eight feet maximum, we only need a 16-foot opening to get the same effect of a glade and maximize the edge. Because that edge is where we're going to maybe throw in some annual plantings and some flowers and herbs and stuff like that and get even a bigger effect than we would designing them into the heart of the system. And it's also another microclimate. So if you have enough space to do so, design clumps and glades between the clumps. Now we're moving into a savanna-style design. That's a savanna. It's emerging of forest and plains. We're doing it in miniature. It's the most productive land-based system in the world. We have to go to agri or aquaculture systems. We have to go to swamps and mangroves and aquaculture systems to be more productive than a savanna. The savanna is the ultimate producer. If we can build that into the system, do it. Even on a very small piece of land, it's very possible to do two clumps with some sort of glade in between them and maximize the edges there. Um, the next one, build structures for your vines, or they're going to otherwise dominate a small system. So if I'm building a major food forest, I could throw in some grapes or kiwis and just let them go up a tree. right? If, I'm, if it, I can only prune a grape vine so much or a kiwi vine so much. So if I'm designing climbers into these systems, and I should be, it makes a lot of sense to build trellises into these systems and so that they don't swamp out these, these scaled-down trees. Uh, and I think that makes a lot of sense anyway in your zone ones is pergolas and trellises and things on the fences and things on the walls. Whatever you can do, put your vines into the wasted vertical spaces, but contain them and prune them off of the trees and the bushes and the vines. So they will swallow a small system, right? But it's easy to do, and you start to realize that that's not a problem, it's a solution. All of a sudden, all this space that was going to be used for nothing becomes a space for vines. And the vines will fill their same roles of diversity and using different resources and creating different microclimates and attracting different pollinators and predators as they would if they were in the system more traditionally. The next thing is fertilize organically a lot early on. Compost, manure, compost and manure, organic fertilizers. Fertilize, fertilize, fertilize. If a tree looks a little bit deficient in nutrient, if the leaves aren't quite as green as they're supposed to be, I, I do this with your gardening. Do this with anything, especially culture, where you're worried about the nitrogen loss in the first year of the system. Just fertilize it. Now, don't burn it. you got to think about how much you do, but give it as much as you should and wait. If it doesn't green up in a day or two, do it again. If it doesn't do green up in a day or two, do it again. If it doesn't green, I do, I do this with people worry about over fertilizing peppers. I do this with white peppers. They look a little yellow, fertilize them. 
Two days later, they still look yellow, fertilize them again. All of a sudden, one day, it kicks in. And the roots, I got it now. And they drive in there. They start to mine for their own nutrients. And all of a sudden, the growth takes off. And I've seen people worried about doing it. And in August, they have these little pathetic, still stringy, yellow leafy peppers that aren't quite, and they have one big ass pepper waiting the whole plant down. Because this plant's like, I gotta do something. I gotta, I know my time is short. I gotta produce a seed here. I gotta, I gotta get by. I'm starving to death. Maybe the kids will be better off than me. Right? But you fertilize early and often early on. Because if you're building the system right, if you're putting micro swales into the system, ponds, considering nutrient flow, chopping and dropping, uh, mulching, being very, very intensive with your plantings, that nutrient is going to be there for a long time. And it'll kickstart the cycle for you. The next, mulch and chop and drop like crazy. These systems that you're planting here, these are mostly perennials. And most of the plants that you're putting into them that are annuals and things like that, most should be well-started plants when you plant them. Even if you're going to go in and plant things like peppers and tomatoes into the system, and you certainly can, and you certainly should, especially around the edges of the glades that you create, they should be well-started plants. That means we could have four, six inches of wood mulch on the ground. And you can afford for a few hundred dollars to do that to a tenth to a quarter of an acre. Right? A quarter's big. I would never probably do this intensive of a system on a full, there'd be a lot of glades in that quarter of an acre. There'd be all kinds of cool, interesting patterns. But if there's a tenth of an acre under cover, we can cover a tenth of an acre with wood chips. Um, and we can do so without having to be uh, Daddy Warbucks. I mean, to put it in perspective, if we wanted to start out, because we're going to be growing a lot that's going to be dropped and, and do it, we just wanted to do this with wood chips. Wood chip mulch, and we were going to do a 50 by 50 project. And we really said, I want three inches everywhere, which is just even not going to happen because there's going to be certain open areas to do your plantings and for other things that you're going to build into the system. But that's 23 cubic yards of mulch. Even if we bought that in bulk at market cost, instead of getting it from tree trimmers and stuff, we're looking at 600 bucks. Do I think you should necessarily go out and buy $600 worth of mulch and do this? It depends on what you, what your goals are and what your budget is. But you can likely find that much mulch in the form of leaves and other things that you can acquire and make wood chips only a portion of it and stretch it with that. The point is, it's pretty easy to go into a system 50 by 50, which is about 2,500 square feet, okay, which is about Four and a half times bigger than the one I was talking about in Jeff's video, okay? And, and completely covered with three inches of mulch. And if you do that, you have a major system in place. So all you gotta do is plant into that, irrigate it, and do a few other things to play around with the nutrient flow and the water flow, and you're gonna have success. You might take a couple of years to really ramp that system up, but it'll work. Um, and again, I want you to think about this. How much would it cost to put an acre under that much, under three inches of mulch is a starter. It's cost prohibitive. It's why you, you don't really see a lot of one acres completely wood mulched out unless you find a tree trimming service that can bring you an awful lot of wood chips. And it doesn't have to be wood chips. It can be leaves. It can be just about anything in this system. But boy, wood chips work good for this forest type system. It's a fungal system. It's optimized for forest gardens. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is some of the plants that you can plant because a big thing I get is, but you know, I can't grow citrus and banana and I, yeah, neither can I. All right. 
Um, maybe citrus, if I could get the citrus, they can actually handle our winters here. But as we talked about yesterday, there's states where you can't ship in a lot of things, and this is one of them. So I'm going to go kind of fast here, but understand that there is a, this whole list. Every single thing I'm going to tell you is on a list in the show notes for 1120. You can go there, you can print it out, and you can just start Googling these different plants, find what's available, learn about the characteristics, learn their zones, because I could spend two, three hours right now giving you all that information on every plant. It's just not necessary. Um, and you should plant what you like and maybe plant some interesting things that aren't available anywhere. But trees that you can keep pruned down in height, Into these kind of systems, here's some ones you can look at. Apples. Northeast, they're a little bit tough due to some diseases and issue, but you can even make them work there. I know that we had apples where I, where I grew up and I was Pennsylvania. Um, and you can find apples that can handle fairly far south and fairly far north. Plums, and there's a lot of different varieties of plums, including things like sand plum uh, and beach plum, which are native plums to the U.S., But there's also Italian plums. There's, there's Asian plums. You do need to think about cross-pollination there. Peach. Peach is a great tree. It looks good. It's easy to maintain in a small size. You can make it very much like a big, gnarly-looking bonsai if you keep pruning it. But you don't get really consistent production from your peaches. You'll always seem to have really good years, mild years, and lean years. That's fine, but if your system's really, really small, I wouldn't use peaches as my primary tree. I would probably pick something else and maybe put a couple in it if there's still room, if I really like peaches. Filberts and hazelnuts. These easily grow into 15-foot trees. They're easily pruned, though, and maintained at six, seven, eight feet in height. They're hyper-productive. They spread naturally on their own. We can build entire hedge systems out of them, like across the back fence of a property where otherwise the space would have largely have gone to waste. Okay, um, And again, there, as long as we stay on the pruning, most of these trees will eventually kind of give up on trying to go higher and start to get just bushy and bulky. Uh, and certainly with filberts and hazelnuts, that's the case. Chinese chestnuts. Chinese chestnut, unlike... A lot of conventional chestnuts can be held into a bush. This is something I would be careful with, though. Um, they still become a fairly large tree. We can prune them and all, but this is something I would not do on a you know 500-square-foot property. If you had a quarter of an acre or more, you could definitely fit one or two of these, and you're going to have to prune them heavily, but what a great crop. And they produce very quickly. Three, four years, you start to get production off of them, and they're your... Your tree bread, uh, for lack of a better term, if you like chestnuts. If you don't like chestnuts, don't grow them. If you're not sure, go buy some. I mean the nuts, not the trees, and try them and see if it's something you want. I can't emphasize how important it is that you pick things you actually want to use for these systems versus the things that seem like they would do well. Next one is almond. I think you can find almonds that will handle down to about zone four and up to about zone eight. That's most of the United States. Um, they're a lot Like peaches in many ways, they're very related to each other, um, but they tend to have a little bit more consistent production. Those of you in the southern United States, uh, jujube, uh, which is also known as Chinese date, they do wonderful. They're a beautiful tree, very easy to maintain in a six to eight foot range. Uh, take a few years to get in production. Once they do, they produce something that kind of sort of is like an apple. Right. If you leave it on the tree long enough, it will literally dry and preserve itself into a date-like thing that tastes more like apple than date with a big pit in it right on the tree. And you, once they dry, you can pick them off the tree and they'll store for a long time that way. 
persimmon. Uh, there's different opinions on persimmon because there are native persimmon trees, which obviously are well adapted um, to the U.S. already. But most of those uh, persimmons like that are going to require bledding. And what I mean by that is they're astringent. If you if you pick one off the tree, slice into it, it looks good. You bite into it and you eat it, and all of a sudden your mouth puckers up. If you remember the old cartoons, Wile E. Coyote and stuff, so once in a while you'd see something called alum, right? And they one would you know, dump it down a straw or something. The other little cartoon character's mouth would pucker. That's kind of the experience you're going to get from the astringency there. There are Asian persimmons that don't require bleeding. The ones that do generally store a little better, so it's up to you. But persimmon's a great tree. Again, it's an easy tree to maintain in a small scale if you'll prune the hell out of it early on. Early, uh, or I'm sorry, edible dogwoods, cornus moss, cornus costa, these are different varieties that you can find. There's reds, there's yellows. I mean, everybody's seen ornamental dogwoods pruned beautifully at you know six feet height with beautiful flowers on them every year lining different estates and different public spaces. There's edible ones that produce these little cherry-like fruits that are awesome. They get into fruiting very early, three to four years, maybe faster in a well-managed system, um, and, and good to go. Pears. I don't have quite the experience or direct knowledge that pears would work in a system uh, the way that I do with many of these other fruits. I've not seen it done. But pears in their shape, their size, and habitat are similar in many ways to apples. If you could make an apple work, I can't see why you wouldn't make a pear work. Cherries. There's a lot of dwarf-style cherries, and you can use cherries that are conventional cherries, tart cherries, sour cherries. You can use cherry plums, uh, which are like the Nanking cherry bush cherries. There's all different options there. And I don't care whether you're in the southern states or the northern states, you probably can find something in the cherry world that will work for you. Pawpaws, um, also known as the American, the American tropical fruit, the American banana custard plant. Uh, these have a reputation as taking a very, very long time to become productive. And I'll tell you why, especially with permaculturists. They have a, a reputation for being an understory tree, a tree that's put back in the shade. And they'll grow, and they'll survive, and eventually they'll produce, but they'll take a long time to get. If you put pawpaws into a system where they get reasonable sunlight, if you fertilize them and you irrigate them and you put them into a polycultured system, they can produce in three to five years. I've had people email me that started them from seed and got them into production in less than five years and got significant production off of them, so don't write them off. If you've never heard of pawpaws, look them up. And understand that you'll hear the term pawpaw in the tropics, It's a totally different thing, and we don't grow those here. This is a native North American pawpaw. There's a plant called a medlar, and a medlar is a tree slash bush slash shrub. Where does it really go? We can use it like a tree in these small systems. Uh, it's a European plant. Uh, these need to be bledded. They come off of like this hard, useless thing, and uh, you you put them on a shelf or a, a countertop, and you let them bled, which means over-ripen off the tree. And then you get a spoon and you dig into them, and it tastes like cinnamon apple apple custard or cinnamon applesauce, uh, what comes out of them. It's just a very unique thing that could be fit into a system. Mulberries. Everybody thinks of how big a mulberry tree becomes, but a mulberry can be grown at almost any side with pr pr pruning and controls. They actually make 
uh, a really good flat espalier style. Uh, so if you wanted to put something up against a fence on a trellis and wire it there and prune it into uh, an espalier, uh, you can do that with a mulberry. Or you can just prune them very, very low and keep them in control. There's contorted, there's weeping, there's all different types of mulberry. Uh, they're a great tree to feed your, your chickens. Uh, and they produce, even when they're very small, they'll start to produce quite early for you, and they produce a lot. The last one I have in the trees is figs. Figs, generally, you're looking at a tree generally in the 6 to 12 foot or higher even, maybe at the 15 foot range, fairly wide and spreading. A couple different things we can do. One, just we go back to pruning. We just prune and prune and prune and hold that fig the size we want. And it'll get in a climate where it doesn't die back in the winter. It'll get very, very hardy and very, very bushy and tough. Uh, and in a climate where it does die back to the ground, we don't have a problem. Because it grows back every year, it dies back in the cold weather, we cut it to the ground, and you have, you know, you can only go so far north before, yeah, it'll cut to the ground, it'll grow back, but it won't produce. So you gotta kinda look at whether or not figs can be productive in your area. A fig needs sun. So this needs to be that harsh place that gets hit with the sun, that's facing the solar aspect right, is where the fig would go. It, it's not right for everybody. Here's the problem. I just gave you that list. Many of you right now are going, I can't grow figs, and I can't grow almonds. Well, I gave you 15 trees, and there's more of them, right? So, again, you have to focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. The next thing to consider are your bushes and shrubs, and you start to get some overlap here. Remember, we've scaled the system down. A lot of these things, like what I'm going to go ahead and give you right away, autumn olive and gumi, which are nitrogen fixers, could be used as trees, because they'll be as big as trees that you'll keep pruned in this small system could be used as trees, even though they're shrubs. But technically, they're shrubs, so I put them on the shrub list. And we can prune them down below the tree layer to use them as uh, sub-canopy trees or to use them as true shrubs. Or we can put them with dwarf trees and basically turn the dwarf tree into the sub-canopy and the shrub into the canopy. The space is there. It's not about a hard rule of what is a tree and what is a shrub. It's the space allocation and how does it compare in a relationship to the other items in there. So I'll give you some quick ones here that I don't really say a lot about. Blueberry, blackberry, raspberry. Great go-tos. Look for primocane and standing erect versions that don't need to be trellised. Those are the best. Look for ever-bearing varieties. Prime Jim, Prime Arc are two great ever-bearing blackberries. I think there's a Prime Jan as well. Jim, Jan, and Arc, I think, are your three big prime uh, primocane blackberries. There's primocane raspberries. Uh, blueberries, you don't have the issue. What I'm talking about with raspberries and blackberries, generally what you have to do is every year you print out what would become your third year, your dead wood. So this is going to be cane that would be going into its third year. Okay, you leave behind your, fir- your 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 cane that grew that year. It's going to become second year cane. It's going to fruit while it's fruiting. New first year will ca- cane will come up in the next year. And at the end of the season, now we're going to prune back the first year to the height we want, and we're going to go in and the stuff that fruited this year, we're going to have to cut the dead wood out. Prima cane means primo means first will fruit on both first and second year canes. So we'll get a longer harvest. We'll get an early and a late harvest. We can do this the lazy way or the extended harvest way with a primocane blackberry or a primocane raspberry. What we can do, we can plant it. We'll get fruit at the end of our first year. At the end of the year, if it's a little bit high, bushy, too big, we prune it back and just leave it there. Okay. When we go into our second year, early, early in the season, that first cane will fruit while the second year canes come up. 
they'll also fruit at the end of the year. Okay? Now, we could just cut that to the ground and let it grow back again, and, and we'll get a pretty quick growth and a little bit of an early harvest uh, in, in like the midterm and a big late harvest, and we can just cut it to the ground every year and not, not deal with anything. Or if we really want a nice extended harvest, all we have to do is every year we go in and we prune out a little bit of the tip to keep it in the size dimensions we want, prune out the dead wood, chop it and drop it, and now we'll continuously get two major harvests off our primal cane blackberries and raspberries every year. How cool is that? And we're getting lots of dead material to chop and drop. Wolfberry, also known as goji berry, that can get really, really big or kept really, really small. We get a hold that at four feet. We can grow it in a right system with enough sun way, way up. It can handle a little bit of mottled shade. It can handle actually quite a bit of shade. It's just more productive when it gets more sun. Great plant, wide range of area for climate. Elderberry, big bush, big shrub, takes up a lot of space, doesn't have to. Can handle it with pruning. We get two different yields off it. We get blossoms and we get berries. The bell berries we can make wine and juice out of. The blossoms, the big flat pancake style blossoms are great if you do eat carbohydrates mixed into something called a fritter. So, and they're, they're an edible plant is uh, an edible blossom for other things as well. But, but elderberry fritters will make even me come out the paleo bandwagon a couple times a year. Gooseberries. Gooseberries will produce in shade. Not like dark, super heavy-duty shade, but the shade you're going to have in a system like this, those shady, cool spots, that's where your gooseberries go. They're a great plant. Um, they don't do great in places like Texas, but you can give it a shot, especially if you have created a microclimate using ponds and using shade. Uh, the next one is currants. Again, shade-loving plant. Uh, we'll produce in the shade. We'll produce more in the sun, but we'll produce in the shade. Gooseberries and currants... Careful how far south you can push them. But, boy, you guys in the north, they go, I can't grow this. I can't. You can grow the ass out of gooseberry and currants. Goomies. Um, goomies and autumn olive are in the same family. Goomies taste better. Autumn olive are easier to grow and propagate. So autumn olive also have a bigger chance of becoming invasive. Both of them are nitrogen foot fixers. Both have a good yield. Here's the thing about autumn olive. In a small system, you don't have a problem with invasive. If it starts to become invasive, cut it off at the ground. Use it as mulch. If it comes back, cut it off of the ground. Use it as mulch. If it comes back, cut it off the ground. You see? And the longer it lasts, the longer you get free mulch, the longer you get more to chop and drop, and the longer you keep pulsing nitrogen into the system. Every time it starts to grow back, what happens? The roots start to expand to support the canopy. And they start that beneficial relationship. They start making nitrogen, little nodules on the roots. When you cut it to the ground, the roots prune back, self-prune, Nitrogen drops in the soil, and the cycle begins again. If you do it long enough, eventually it gives up the ghost. So autumn olive, I would definitely consider. Gumi, I would definitely consider. Sea buckthorn um, is, a, is a great plant, also known as sea berry. Incredible medicinal value, an interesting flavor, different varieties. Very, very thorny, highly, highly productive. Do not know how well it will do in the south. Does amazing in the, the mid, middle to northern United States. Also fixes nitrogen. Everything I said about autumn olive, if it starts to become more rampant than you want it to, cut it back, mulch it, rock on with life. Um, blue honeysuckle. A lot 
of flavor similar to blueberries and huckleberries, handles colder climates, grows about the size of a blueberry, not great for the southern, but those of you that are a little bit too far north uh, to do typical blueberries, blue honeysuckle will handle zone two. All right, so I'm going to cover everything. Aronia, great plant, just look it up, Aronia. Uh, that's, that's a native to America. A lot of work been done with them overseas. High bush cranberry. Great bush. For those of you that don't want to try to grow cranberries on the ground for ground cover, a good option. Not the same, but is a cooking or a mead element or a wine element or a juice element. Lots of nice tartness. High bush cranberry with beer, uh, would make an amazing fall ale. Uh, for those of you that are homebrewers. Let's talk about some ground covers really quick. I've got a, I got a pretty good list of those for you. Um, strawberries, I think, are the go-to ground cover in most of the United States. If you're too far north, go to Alpine Strawberries. If you're too far south, go to the southern varieties. There's a variety for just about everywhere. If you're like, well, I live in the middle of the tundra. I don't know, move, dude. I mean, seriously, there's, there's places where um, the, there are the extremes. I live on the top of a rock in the middle of the Arizona desert, and there's no slope. Dude, move. I, I, I can't make everything work for everybody. But the reality is in most places with irrigation, nutrient flow, polyculture, fertilization, heavy mulches, you can grow strawberries, sweet potatoes. As long as the soil will allow the tubers to form, it's not so dense. You can probably go sweet potatoes in all but the most extreme northern parts of the United States and well into the south with no problems. They actually like stress. If you have any problems with sweet potatoes in a forest garden, you will have given them so much of what they want and so little stress that guess what? They might not form good tubers for you because it's too, it's too kind of an environment. They don't feel like they need to propagate. But they'll form little ones. And here's the good news about sweet potato. Um, sweet potato greens, whether they're purple sweet potatoes or actually green ones, are actually really good to eat. They're good in salads and stir fries. In a, especially a southern climate, lots of mulch, and even pretty far north, even if you don't take much of a tuber yield, you can grow them as a perennial. They'll winter over, and they'll come back. Isn't that cool? Now think about that. Now I've got a perennial green that I can keep right through the summer when it's hard to grow spinach and lettuce, especially in the south, or beets or other things like that. And it's really better than most people would think. And guess what? It's available as an ornamental plant at nurseries and big box stores everywhere. Uh, there's no GMO sweet potatoes. You don't have to worry about that. It's easy to propagate. You want it to root? Dig a hole, take the vine, stick it in there, cover it up. It'll root and start a whole new. Once it starts to grow, you can actually cut the place that you originally uh, from the mother plant. You can bury it somewhere else. You can do that with a lot of runner strawberries as well too. They start sending out runners. Dig a hole, put the runner in the hole. Once it establishes itself, cut the runner, right? And that'll encourage the mother plant to send out more runners. It's amazing what can be done if we start to get creative. You live in the in the north, and I want to grow something really cool and different, and all this stuff you can grow in the south, I can't grow. Wham. Okay, how about wintergreen? Wintergreen, also known as tea berry, grows native all over Pennsylvania. Uh, I remember being out in the in the snow hunting deer, and if you found a little place where the snow had melted back in in right areas, you'd find tea berries. And I remember eating tea berries, and the berries themselves have a wintergreen like flavor. We can use the the green part, so that's that's something we can do in the north. Uh, we can also do uh, a plant called emerald carpet. Now, this is an interesting one that you, most of you have probably never heard of before. So what do you hear about this one? This is basically an evergreen raspberry from the Orient. 
Um, it will grow in zone six to ten. If you're zone four, I'm sorry. I can't do everything for everybody with every plant, right? And I know some people seem to want it to be that way, but six to ten, that's a, that's a broad sweep of the United States. Uh, the, the scientific name is Rubus pentalobus. Uh, it's a green, evergreen ground cover from Taiwan. It has a clover-shaped, leathery green foliage. It turns copper in autumn. It grows only a few inches tall and will produce yellow berries uh, that are like kind of like a yellow raspberry. It doesn't produce a lot, but it's there, and it serves the purpose of a ground cover. So there's another new one for you guys. With ground covers, get creative. Trailing thyme would be, uh, uh, you know, so the herb thyme. And plant herbs in this place everywhere. I mean, if there's a place and there's a hole and you don't have some, shove basil in there, shove borage, shove, any herb that you can place anywhere, shove it in there. If it doesn't grow, put a different one in and try that herb somewhere else. Um, cranberry is a good ground cover. A lot of people think you need a bog for cranberries. You just need somewhat acidic soil. You can amend the area that your cranberry clump is. Uh, uh, with a little bit of azalea fertilizer will, will give you some acidic uh, nature. And remember something else. In a really good polycultured environment, you can have alkaline and acid-loving plants growing right next to each other. And you sit there and go, how does that work? We stop tilling the soil. Let me say it one more time. We stop tilling the soil one more time. We don't till the soil. And what happens is pH is in soil stratifies. Whenever they tell you to get a soil sample, what do they do? Dig a hole, mix it together, take it from several areas, and get an average. Well, gee, plants are smarter than average. If a plant really likes acidic soil, and there's an acidic somewhat layer, and that's not always the case, but in most, when you build a system like this, it will happen over time at different levels of decay and different levels of organic matter, Right And different nutrients at different levels, you're going to get different pHs. They're not going to be uniform. And the acid-loving plant will find an acid layer and stratify the majority of its roots there, and the alkaline plant will do the same, and the neutral plant will do the same. So don't overthink that, but you can do cranberry. And frankly, for ground cover, remember, well, the ground cover we want is anywhere that the ground's exposed, we'd like it to be covered with something, please. The more we cover, the better we'll do, except for pathways and access points, Right? Anything you plant dense enough is a ground cover, right? I wouldn't call uh, basil a ground cover, but if you plant a bunch of basil in or parsley and it fills in, it's covering the ground. It's serving the function. It's about the function. Uh, I'm long today, so I'm going to go kind of quick here with the vines. Grapes, kiwi, hops, porcelain berry, magnolia vine, and maypop are all great vines. Again, in these small systems... I don't want to try to emulate nature too much. If I take a grapevine and put it on a tree that I'm pruning at five feet, I'll probably kill the tree with the vine. Um, kiwis grow like, I put a hundred pounds of kiwis on a good vine if I do it right. And there's kiwis that handle the heat and there's kiwis that handle the cold. Look them up. Arctic kiwis, obviously further north. And then you have more of a typical, uh, they're like a giant grape-sized kiwi that are more of a mid-tier. And the fuzzy kiwis can go into the most southern reaches of the United States. And they're not optimum everywhere, but you can fit them in. But kiwis, huge yield. If you have 100 pounds of kiwis weighing down a couple small pruned trees, it'll weigh them down and snap them. So build uh, systems for... Uh, your vines in here, hops, what a great plant in a system like this, uh, especially on a pergola. Uh, porcelain berry is, is a kind of a unique, kind of pretty little berry. It's not the most valuable food berry in the world, but it, it brings another diversity in. Maypop is passion flower. 
May poppies are native passion flower, which will go up into well into the northeastern regions of the United States and anything similar to those climates uh, from one end to the, the, the country uh, to the other. I mean, most May pop species, we're looking at zones like, um, well, uh, the standard May pop is uh, four to, or five to nine. And uh, there's, there's what's known as a blue crown passion flower, which is really an amazing plant. Uh, and you're going to have to be a little bit further south for that when you're looking at 7 to 11. But 5 to 9 and 7 to 11, that's a lot of the country. And again, I, you can't have everything everywhere, but those are an incredibly beautiful plant and an incredibly unique fruit that most people have never even seen. Um, and I'll tell you what, if you were to mix maypop and something like seaberry, you'd get a hell of a, uh, a juice with a hell of a lot of medicinal value and tonifying value in it. Some other plants to consider, um, large hip heirloom roses. My grandmother uh, had these beautiful rose bushes that I have told the story before that every spring she'd say, uh, I need a sunny planted underneath every rose bush. I think there were two dozen of them. And a sunny, for those that are more familiar with other terms, might be known as a brim or a perch, a little like bluegills and pumpkin seeds and uh, red ear sunfish, any kind of little sunfish. So I'd take my little fishing pole and a couple pieces of bread, and I'd go up to the pond above her house, and I'd go up there and come back with a couple dozen sunfish, and I'd dig a hole on an angle kind of into the root system and put one of those in uh, every plant. And those were the most beautiful rose bushes for miles around. Well, every... Um, every fall, uh, we would make rose hip jelly from the rose hips, and it was wonderful. And we would do rose tea, uh, and then you've got just beautiful plants with a rose and the smell and the the uh, the positive and beneficial insects those bring in. So those are a really great plant to build into your system, and uh, you can do some of the more modern varieties of roses as well, just for the beauty. But if you get like the Rosa ragusa, the old old roses that are immune to a lot of the problems of modern roses, you get uh, a really great yield. And by the way, uh, rose hips are huge in vitamin C. A lot of the other stuff I've talked about today, vitamin C is not the concern that a lot of people think. You don't need citrus for vitamin C. I've, I know people have never eaten an orange in their life, and they're not dying of scurvy. But, boy, there is a lot of vitamin C in rose hips. Another plant to consider, Chilean or um, pineapple guavas. These are... You're going to be in southern United States, probably zone seven. Uh, uh, Chilean may handle zone six with everything perfect, uh, but then as far south as you want to go, um, these are grown in, in England, so it's not like it's a super tender plant. Uh, it brings another bit of that tropical flair into the system. Those can be pruned to any size you want. Herbs of all types, but parsley and basil. I mean, parsley, basil, I should say rosemary, dill, everything. But the beauty with parsley and basil is you get so much reseeding. And, and when you get your second year of parsley, I mean, you just get this big flowery thing and billions of seeds. And basil, you know, five or six basil plants in your first year will give you enough basil seed to seed the whole neighborhood uh, over the, the course of the summer. These things need the sun areas, but you're going to have some mixtures of sun and shade. Plant them in those edges of those glades where they get the sun. Flowers of all types, wild flowers, herb flowers, I don't care. Get lots of flowers into that system as well. Plant annuals directly into the sunny spots and around the system, right? So if you have this clumped, beautiful system and you have these edges, either as glades or just like this is as much as I'm going to do and I'm going to leave this part of the, the, the system open, instead of doing all of your annuals in a more conventional garden, 
Plant your annuals right into these edges. Let them partake in the polyculture. It's it's okay to do. Plant well-started plants. And the thing is, the productivity will be hyper-productive in even your annuals in these systems, assuming you give them enough sunlight to do their job. Uh, and, and, and when you have all this other stuff, it, you'll rely on them less, and that means less planting of annuals, and that means less work. Bamboos, especially in corners and wasted spaces and clumps, Uh, where you're not really wanting to do anything else. You can do clumping bamboo so you don't have a big problem with runners. Now I've got a structural element. I can build things with bamboo. I can make things with bamboo. And there's some really great clumping-style bamboos if you don't want to have to put in a border and border everything in. Uh, and, and honestly, anything you want. I think that's what people really need to realize is these systems, if you think something will work, plan it. Prune it, control it to size, and just let it go. I mean, just... If it dies, it dies. It, it's, it's, it's not your dad. It's not even your dog, okay? It's a tree. If it doesn't work out, oh, well, you tried. Now you've learned something. Don't do that tree in that space or that climate or whatever again. Um, it, it, there's, there's a real scalability here. You know, we can start and we can just say, you know what? I've seen what somebody can do on 600 square feet. So I'm going to do 400 my first year. I'm going to design the hell out of 400 square feet. Eventually, I want 1,200 square feet. So next year, I'm going to do another 400, and I'm going to tweak the first 400. And then the next year, I'm going to do another 400, and I'm going to tweak the first two. And then I'm going to spend all the rest of my management and time tweaking that full 1,200 square feet. I can do that economically, and I can do that sanely, and I can get the system mature enough that the maintenance requirements aren't going to overwhelm me. And again, if you look at what was done with 600 square feet in the video, and if you have not watched it, I know I've said it before, but please watch it. Please start to understand what can be done. And we didn't even, look, I mean, we're talking about small spaces today just with forest gardening. We didn't talk about small-scale herb spirals and herb gardens and vegetable gardens. We didn't talk about aquaponics. Uh, we didn't talk about so many things, just the forest gardening aspect of things. You take this approach With And most people in their budget, because you got to live somewhere, you could definitely do a quarter of an acre lot. And you give yourself a little bit for your annual garden. You allocate some space for some chickens. You allocate some space for a few other things. Uh, and you put in a forest garden of around even a tenth of an acre. And you have more productivity than you can fully use. And probably about as much as you're going to want to work on. Now, if you can scale up to a half of an acre, which, again, I think is very doable. It's a lot more doable for a lot of people with where you can live, getting to work, living your life, not just as a homesteader, but living your life in the modern world at the same time. Because remember, in spite of the fact that I think one day this economy is going to go into a shift that's going to bury a lot of people, the doomers and gloomers are wrong. The whole thing isn't going to dry up and blow away. It's not going to be like the TV show Revolution. It's not going to be like the novel Patriots. Even when there's major disasters, the natural state of humanity is as a community creature that rebuilds. So you're going to have certain aspects of life that need to be lived at all times. And for most people in that scenario, they like having other people around. They don't want to be in the middle of nowhere. And they can't afford 40 acres right on the edge of town. This is the sweet spot. And even if you can afford five acres or 10 acres or 100 acres, you say, what should I do first? You know what? Scale it down. Circle that house with a, you know, two tenths to a quarter of an acre. Build this first. Build this first. That's where I would start anyway. 
I think it's the right place to start for everyone. You'll learn more. Your productivity will be higher. Your success rate will be higher. And by the time you're done with it, you'll be ready to take on the large. And I'm not saying do it for five years. I'm saying put that system in over a year or two. And when you're done with that, your mind will be open to the possibilities for those that have larger land of what you'd call the broad acre. With an exception, I would say if you have land that's set up to put ponds in and swales in and plant the swales with trees, do that. If you can afford it, do that because that system is so hyper-productive in its own way, so beautiful, and will actually make what you're doing on a small scale work better by providing shelter around you. And the water is so valuable, it's worth doing. But for the rest of the 90%, right, the 90% that are never going to own 40 acres or even five, or, or just that's not in their time frame in the next 10 years, this is the place to start. This is the hyper-productivity that's possible. And even the person with 50 acres will never outproduce you in per, per square foot uh, production. They'll never do it. And these systems, we start thinking of trees and stuff like that taking 5, 10 years or more to produce. Systems like this, your trees are producing in 4 to 5 years. Even trees that typically take 8 years. Your shrubs, your vines and things like that, sometimes they're producing in the first year. They're definitely producing in the second year. And it's kind of like saving for retirement, though I don't maybe think you should follow the financial advisor's advice, right? He's right when he says the best time to start saving was yesterday. And if you haven't done that, then the best time to start saving is today. Putting these systems in, no matter how long they're going to take to fully mature, the best time to start putting them in is now. I hope I've opened your eyes to the concept of forest gardening and food forestry and permaculture today in a new way. I hope you've learned a lot from it, and I hope that a lot of the things that you thought were a problem, you now see as a solution. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Yeah.